You're listening to audio from Grace Hills Church in Aliso Viejo, California. For more information, visit us online at gracehills.com. Amen. Good morning, church. So I want to throw this out as well. David, good job on the announcements. There's only like 40, so you did a good job there. Uh, with membership, so you're like, oh, I don't know if we're going to be a member or not. This is actually a great place for you to come if you're not sure who Grace Hills is, what we do, what we're about, what our vision is. Like, come, this is a place where you can ask questions. So if you're thinking about what would it look like to become a member at Grace Hills Church, I encourage you, come to that. It's just gonna be one Sunday. It's for just a few hours. Uh, You get free food. So if anything, you get a free meal out of it. I can't promise how great it is, but you're gonna get something to eat. So come and join us if you'd like to be a part of that. Uh, My name is Simon, by the way. I'm the pastor here at the church. Uh, If I haven't met you yet, I'd love to shake your hand, hear how you stumbled into our church and how you come to be here this morning. Um, Some of you can remember this, some of you can't. But I remember when there were no such thing as cell phones. So you're like, you're not that old, Simon. Uh, but I remember not having cell phones. I remember that you had to have the landline. Remember when you had the long cord where you could like walk into the room, like you had to be connected to a wall. Uh, if you had to call somebody and you're on the road, you had to go to this thing called a payphone, and you had to put money into a machine that lets you call people. Like, and it used to be a dime that kept raising it. I, I remember those things. But then when the cell phone came out, it changed everything. Suddenly, you had the ability to contact anyone at any point whenever you wanted to. And I actually had a job at one point where I was predominantly in a vehicle, whether it was a truck or a van. I drove all over California. And before cell phones, you had the radio and your thoughts. That's all you had. And it got real boring for a long time. But then suddenly, when your vehicle has a phone, you can talk to people and do stuff. And uh, that during that time, I actually connected with my sister. Uh, we talked for, gosh, four or five times a week because I just had time to kill behind the wheel. But I also remember that this was before there was any laws regarding cell phones. Maybe you can remember that. And you could drive around and have your phone and talk and you got pulled over and you tell the cop, I'm on the phone. He's like, oh, whatever. And it, it didn't matter. There was, no, there was no consequences. There were no tickets. There were no fines for having that. Hands-free didn't make any sense. But what we started to find really clearly was that the more people were on the phone, the more they were distracted, the more they were distracted, the less they drove well, which then caused accidents. And so all of a sudden, the lawmakers started putting into this effect, like, we need laws for this. This distraction is actually becoming a problem. Do you realize that there are 1.6 million car accidents a year because of being on your phone and driving? I was like, that number seems high. I think that number's low. But that's the reality that we have to have this. But here's the thing. We all know it's wrong and it's not the right thing to do, right? right? (laughs) But we all do it. (laughs) We all do it at some level. We find ourselves on the phone. Why? Because we think it's not that big of a distraction. We think that we can handle it. We don't think it's a big deal. And you're like, Simon, we have talked a lot about cell phones and driving. Why are we talking about this? I thought Jesus is supposed to teach on something. He is. Jesus is going to teach about a very similar idea, something that I think we all realize and understand. We should know how it functions, but yet We don't, and we find ourselves falling into the same trap all the time. And so Jesus wants to talk on this in Matthew chapter 6, 
in verses 19 through 24. It's going to maybe be a familiar section of Scripture from the Sermon on the Mount, but let me read it, and we're just going to go ahead and talk about what God would have for us today in an area that I think affects every single one of us, no matter where we are in life. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's go ahead and pray and get into this section. Jesus, we are entering a section that can be sensitive to a lot of people. Lord, I ask that your word would do the work today. That it wouldn't be me, it wouldn't be my words, my thoughts, my ideas, but truly your word would open and illuminate the hearts of men and women. If we have made money, wealth, or possessions our God in our life, if we, if we have orientated our lives to be about what the world values, I ask that you would gently convict our hearts, that you would turn us back to you that you would give us eternal value and purpose in what we do with while we're here on this planet. Just the idea of being homesick reminds us all the time that this is not our world, that we are destined for something greater. So Lord, I ask that you would show us that today as we dive into this passage and that you would speak today loudly and clearly. I pray this in your name. Amen. So Jesus is going to talk about the thing that we all deal with at some level. We're going to talk about money, this thing that at times can distract us. But we have to start asking the question, what is it about money? It's just a coin. It's just an object. It's just a piece of paper. It's just a digital number on a phone. Like, what is it about money? If I was to take a survey... I won't, so don't raise your hand if you're thinking about it. If I say, raise your hand if you need a little more money, chances are most of us would raise our hands. And, it, and I think about that because I'm guilty too. I would also raise my hand. Yeah, I could use a little bit more. Yeah, I'd like a little bit more. Yeah, it could be really helpful. But we live in a country that even at our lowest poverty section, we are still wealthier than most countries in the world. Yet why do we find this desire that we want more, that we need more? Money and things always have this way of making you feel like you have security, that you're safe in some way, shape, or form. If things get hard, my money will get me through the storm. It'll allow me to endure the trials of life that come because my money will be able to buy, purchase, get the things that I need. We think that money brings us joy, all the things I want, all the desires of my heart that I can have, and those things that I have that make me happy, and I can buy things for other people that make them happy as well, so there's a, a set of joy that comes from that. It gives me hope, hope for tomorrow. It, can, it, it, it takes care of, of things because there's enough zeros in my bank account that lets me know that uh, my future is safe. 
It makes me feel like I will not be in want because I can just buy whatever I want or whatever I need. But, but here's the thing. Most of us would probably say that we know this, that money and wealth does not fulfill in those ways. It doesn't bring the happiness and the joy and the contentment that we think it will. And, and oddly enough, it can go away even faster than it was accumulated, can't it? We see that all the time. You talk to people who win the lottery within, I think the number is, they go bankrupt within five to seven years of getting millions and millions and millions of dollars. It goes away so fast. Or if the market changes, it goes away as well, doesn't it? And there's this statement that we make, if I just had a little bit more, if I just had a little bit more, things would be okay. If I just had a little bit more, I could get through this problem. If I just had a little bit more, it would ease the tension in the house. It would give us that cushion that we need to really relax. Maybe I'm saying things like, how did you get in my house and listen to the things that I've said? Do you know the Bible talks about money a ton? Like, it's one of those mega themes in the Bible. Money is mentioned just in the Gospels in some way, shape, or form, 288 times. Just in the four books of the Gospels, in some way, shape, or form. That's one out of 10 verses. Do you know that the Bible speaks about prayer about 500 times in the entirety of the Bible? Do you know that money is mentioned over 2,000 times in the Bible? So if you just look at those numbers, if you look at the weight, chances are God has something to say about us and money and how we deal with it and how it functions in our lives and how we view that and what we do with it as we move forward. Because it's interesting, if you look at money, if you look at things, they're morally neutral. What do I mean by that? Money doesn't make decisions. Things don't make decisions. It's just this thing that exists in society. It can be used for good. It can be used for evil. But what's really dependent upon is the person who has it and how they utilize that. That's what makes money so dangerous. But it's money in itself. There's nothing bad about it. But what we find over and over again is that money becomes a distraction for us when it comes to how we interact and how we deal with God. See, this passage comes out of the Sermon on the Mount, probably one of the most popular teachings from Christ, and really what he does, he just kind of covers every aspect of life and what that looks like. He's talking about this kingdom, his kingdom is going to come. He's talking about the fact that those that are a part of his kingdom, this is how they live, this is how they function, and this is what it looks like to interact with the world around them when empowered by the Holy Spirit to bring God glory in all that we do. And so he's going to lay out these, there's going to be three sets of two that we're going to look at today. And we're going to start with our first point, which is two treasures, earth and heaven. Those are the two treasures he's going to look at right off the bat. So as he starts with the idea of money, the word that he's using is treasure, which is what he's trying to talk about. But he's really talking about wealth. And he's going to talk about these two different kinds and how they function in the world. There's a treasure that we should store up. And there's a treasure that we should not store up. And what you're going to see is, once again, these two ideas are going to be contrast in every single example that we're going to look at because that's usually how Jesus teaches on the contrast between us and God and good and evil and right and wrong. All of those kind of come into play. And he starts 
with this earthly treasure. The big idea is this, is he'll land in that earthly treasure is temporal. And what I mean by temporal is that it just doesn't last. It's not going to sustain the way it is. And you're like, well, no, it will. It's great. I mean, we work really hard to buy the things that we like, right? We save our money, or if you're like most Americans, you just get a credit card and then worry about it later. Then they take it from you and you can't pay that bill. But we, we don't, we work hard, we buy these things, and we, we don't realize that they're all going to end up in the garbage at some point. Anyone ever have a Palm Pilot? <laughs> Anyone like, I gotta have it! I can't be organized without my Palm Pilot! Or a Blackberry? Or, or maybe you had a Zune? And you're like, what's a Zune? Exactly. I had a Ford Pinto. I'll just leave that at that. <laughs> but all these things that we thought were so amazing and so great and were going to make our lives so good, they get thrown away. They're, you can find them at the goodwill. People have donated them because they don't last. Something new and shinier and better has come out. They don't actually satisfy the way that we think that they're going to do, but ultimately they just fail you. They don't have the sustainability to bring that joy, hope, and satisfaction that you desire in life. And then he talks about the idea that there will be moth, rust, and thieves. So these it's kind of hard to understand one of these, and that's the idea of moths. I mean, we understand what moths do. We understand what fabric does. But in that day and in that age, that fabric was used as a commodity. Fabric was something, we didn't have the textile plants that we have today that can mass produce clothes for pennies on the dollar. We just don't. But back then, it took a lot of energy to make those things. And so people would use to trade and sell and buy with these different linens and these different clothes. If you had more than one set of clothing, that meant that you had a lot of wealth. But what he's saying is like, moths come in. If you've ever had nice clothes and they've been in a closet and you've had moths come in and they destroy your clothes, like they eat everything up and then they're worthless. They don't do anything. And that's what he's saying. He's like, moths will come in. They will ruin and eat the, the silk and the cotton and all the things that you have. Like, well, I don't have my money wrapped up in fabric, Simon. I have, you know, metal and coins and stuff. And he's saying, well... With enough time, with enough moisture, and enough oxygen, all that metal will start to rust and fall apart. Don't believe me? Go anywhere near the beach and look at all the metal railings and realize how they're all rotting. They keep replacing them year after year because they can't sustain, and they'll fall to pieces that ultimately time will have its way. Be like, ha-ha, I invest in precious metals, Simon. I watch Fox News. I have a bunch of gold in a safe at my house, and that's where I keep it, and the gold is the standard. Well, then what's he say? That there are those who want that as well, who don't want to work, and who will come and take it by force, and they will rob and steal and take the things that you have put so much hope and desire into. So he's really laying out that these things aren't going to work for you. They will fail you in some way, shape, or form. So... What is this treasure talking about? He's talking about money. He's talking about things. He's talking about possession. But really, he's talking the idea, and just hold this thought, excess, overabundance, indulgence is what he's talking about. What these all do, if you start to understand, is money starts to build up your reputation, your power, your prestige, and it all points to building up self. Because whoever has the money, that says who that person is important or valuable or a hard worker or worth something. 
Look at me, look what I've done, look what I can do, look how smart I am, look how great I am. Look, I have these numbers that represent my value. It just happens to be money is what we're talking about. See, money embodies that idea. The funny thing is that this time on our earth as well, it's also temporal. It is, it is also coming to an end. And all these things that you accumulate and all this money, when you die, it's gone. You don't take it with you. You don't get to, to bring it with you and someone else gets that. I mean, it's, it's crazy. And if you don't assign that to somebody else, the government will take that. Do you realize that, right? Like, you don't get to keep it. And that's what Jesus is getting at. There's this storing up idea. There's this great parable where Jesus is talking to, uh, he would call the uh, rich young fool. It's like, I don't want to be known that way, but that's how he's known. And he gives him this story about this guy who makes all this money, has all this grain and all these possessions. He's like, I'm going to build bigger storehouses. I'm going to make them huge. I'm going to put all my stuff in there. And then he says that he's going to do this. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But what is the response from God? But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, those, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. He's saying that there is this treasure that doesn't last, but there's this treasure that does last. And that we should be investing in the treasure that does last, but it's stored in a different place. It's not in your home, it's not in a safe, it's not in a bank, but it's someplace else that isn't of this earth which leads us to the heavenly treasures. This transition here is, but, don't do this, but you need to do this. That's really what he's saying. The treasure that you need is to lay up treasures that can only be stored in heaven, where you're not going to see all the other problems of rust and moss and decay and someone coming to steal that. It can't be destroyed. It's untouched by sin. Sin doesn't have any effects on this treasure in this location because that's where God is. But you know what's interesting? He doesn't tell us right away what the treasure is. He doesn't tell us what it is. He just says that you want to store it someplace else. So how do I, I mean, is there a way to send my cash to heaven so I have it there as my, my second retirement program? Is that, is that what he's saying? No. But by the end of this message, he's going to tell us that it's something different than we realize. It's less tangible. It's not what we would think. It has a different focus. The focus is really less on us, and it's more on God and how he interacts with his world. But then he connects the treasure with our hearts. Now, you have to understand this culture in this day and in this age. We always go, oh, the, the, the core of who I am is my brain. That's not how the, 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 the Middle East work. It's the, the heart is the core of a person. Everything flows out of the heart. It's the central part of who we are. It's what drives us. It's what motivates us. It's what we're passionate about. It's, it's where all of our hopes and dreams come from. It's what flows out of our heart. It's, it's really what we value most stems as a wellspring of the heart that flows out. What consumes your thoughts? What are the things that you think about all the time? Where, do your, where does your mind wander during the day? 
The answer to that question is extremely telling about what you find most valuable in life. Have you ever asked the question, what do I desire most in this life? Got real quiet real quick, didn't it? I was told when I was younger, show me your bank account and I will show you what you love and worship. Show me your bank account and I will show you what you love and worship most. At the end of the day, that is a very true statement. You can say I love this or I love that, but you know it's true when your money and your time and your resources flow to that thing that you love and worship so much. I don't know what it is for you, but I, I guarantee if you started to show me where you're spending your money, I could really start to pinpoint those areas. See, the heart is a megaphone for your desires. It's the real you. Jesus is making us ask the question about what our treasure is. He wants us to answer that question for each of us in our lives. And he's going to press harder as he moves into it. What do you believe about the world and how it works? Where do the value systems come from? What do you understand about life and the one who created it? So he moves to his second section and his second set of contrasts, which is the two kinds of eyes is where he's going to move. Now, at first glance, this section feels really out of place. You're like, you got treasure and money in the front, you got money on the back, and then you got eyeballs in the middle? Like, that seems off. That seems weird. What's up with the shifting to the eyes? And he says that the eye is a lamp of the body, or it's a lamp to the body, or that it really it provides light for your whole body to work and function, namely, how we live our life. That's what he's saying. The eye, he moves around the eye's health. The health determines what we see in this lamp is what he's going to start moving into. It, it provides light and, and how, it, how it works and what it does is if you have a, a good eye, it's going to be healthy and it's going to have light. But if you have a bad eye, it's going to have darkness instead of light. Now, I don't know about you. I love flashlights. I don't know what it is. I absolutely love flashlights. In my Jeep, I have three. I don't know why I have three, but I have three flashlights, and they all do different things because I just love them. There's something about it. It's, it's not like I was just a kid and I love them. I love them today. I'm a sucker if I'm at a store and I see a really cool flashlight. I'm like, I, I need that. Why? It's, it's daytime. I need that. I don't know if it's a prepper in me or something, but there is something powerful about having a flashlight in a dark room, isn't there? that I, I wield this device that when I shine it in dark areas, darkness flees away. Darkness moves in directions. And where I once couldn't see, where I once couldn't navigate, now I can. There's a power involved in having that. You know what's funny? Who wants to hold the flashlight whenever you're hiking? The kids, right? I want to have it. I want to have the flashlight. Give me the flashlight. Why? Because there's power there and there's safety there and security there because it lets you know what is there and what isn't there, right? And that's what Jesus is starting to build out in this idea that the healthy eye is like a flashlight. It, it shines a light out of it so your whole body knows where to go. So your whole body knows what to do. See, we wouldn't be able to move around if it wasn't for that. See, our lives need to have a healthy light. We need to have the ability to guide us and to show us the dangers. 
to move in a safe way throughout this world, to move with intention. We need to see clearly so we know what is right and we know what is wrong. We need to know where to focus our attention and where to steer clear of. We need to know what has value and what doesn't. And this is just like we are in life. We need to know what is right and what is wrong. We need to know what to move towards and we need to know what to move away from. And if we don't have healthy eyes that can shed light on that, we'll never know how to function. Likewise, he's saying that if your eye is not healthy, that if it's not good, that you are using the wrong light, or if you're a bad light, it's like having a flashlight with with no batteries. There's nothing more useless than a flashlight in a dark room with no batteries. That's what he's saying in this moment. Now, I went to Kentucky uh, last year. I went with a bunch of buddies, went to go visit a prison. I got problems, but I still went to go see a prison. But we were in Kentucky at one point, and we ended up going to the Mammoth Cave National Park. Have you ever been there? Anyone? Unreal. I have never been to a place like that in my entire life. It is worth, if you were ever near Kentucky, go there, go on the tours. It's one of the largest cave systems in the entire world. As they've been mapping it, they have mapped not a couple of miles, hundreds of miles underground, and they still haven't found the end of it. No matter how, they just keep searching. Every weekend, there's groups that go through there, and it just goes and goes and goes. And these caves, like you go in, and they're just monstrous. One of the rooms that we went into, I think we had hiked about a mile into the cave. We're a mile underground. You're like, not for me. It was awesome. It was about four times larger than this room massive. And the, the ranger says, everyone gather here, gather around me. So we gather around. It's like, here, watch this. And he killed the lights. It was dark. <laughs> it wasn't like, oh, your eyes will adjust. There's nothing to adjust to. You're not going to see anything. We just stood there. I'm like, nothing's happening. He's like, hold your hand in front of you. I mean, Nothing. And, and you know what was weird? We're all in this room and we're like, ha, 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 that nervous laugh. Why? Because we didn't know what to do. If those lights never came on, we couldn't get out of there. We'd never find our way out. And if we, if we did, we'd be bloodied and bruised up. But I didn't even feel comfortable shifting around. I didn't know, like, am I going to reach my hand out and, and touch someone I shouldn't be touching? Or Like, I just don't know what to do. When those lights came back on, it was different. He said, that's what it's like. That's what it's like for you if you don't have a healthy eye, that it's like being in that cave, pursuing money and wealth in this way and putting all of your value in that is like being in a dark cave with no light. And what Jesus is saying here, which is even more profound, is there is a light that you think is a light, but it's really darkness. That's what he's saying. It's like if you were able to like take your light, you're literally shining more darkness on darkness if that was even possible. And he says this statement, how horrible would that be and how great that darkness would be? But that's how we are. How do we see things clearly? How do we do that? Jesus is saying this is about our worldview. 
What worldview guides you to understand how we function in this world? What are you using as your light to let you see the reality of this world right now? Are you looking to the world to show you what is right and wrong and good and, and perfect? Is that where you look for your, for your light? Or are you looking to God for your light? What, you have to start making decisions on that. And, and Jesus presses into this idea in John chapter 8. He says this, and Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He's saying, I am this light. Uh, if you follow me, you will have this light. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means to believe and trust in what he says is good, right, and perfect, and to follow what he would say how we should live our lives, not what the world says that we should live our lives. He would say earlier in the section of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, talking about his kingdom, talking about the people of his kingdom, he says this in chapter 5, verse 14 through 16, says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do, you, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and do what? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, Jesus is starting to, un he's starting to unveil what this light is and what it looks like. Light is always compared to truth in the Bible. Darkness is always surrounded by the lies. And I, and I love what he says. The, the reason why Jesus came and what, what this purpose is all about. And he says this in 1246. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. See, he's saying that to get out of darkness, you need to be connected to me, which moves us to how this comes, how we get this light. The third contrast, the, the third idea is the two masters. So all this hinges on which master you submit to, which master you serve. Um, I, I've had lots of jobs growing up. And occasionally I would have overlapping jobs where I had two jobs at the same time. Maybe you've had that, maybe you haven't. Depends on how it is. And it's all great and fine and dandy until that fateful day when both bosses need you to work on the same day and the same time. You ever had that happen? You're like, oh no. What do I do now? Because you can't be in two places. You literally have to say no to one and yes to the other. But as, as we even look at that idea, what Jesus is saying is even more, it has more weight than just an employee and employer. Because we can quit, right? He's like, no. Who is your master? Who is in charge? Who makes the decisions in your life? Who calls the shots? You know what America hates? That idea. I make my own decisions. I'm in control of my life. I'm the captain of my ship. No one tells me what to do. We want to be in charge. We want to be in charge of all things. Do you know where sin came from? That idea. If I could just be in charge, I'd make everything better and right. And it wasn't. 
That is where the darkness came from. That is where the lie came from. When we decided to take the wheel, to take the controls, and to try to do what we thought was best is when all of this went sideways. This is where decay and destruction all come from. And we do this by trying to take care of ourselves with money. And money makes you think that you can. You can't have two masters. It's either the world or it's God. He will not share you. He refuses. It's all or nothing. This, this word that he uses for wealth is mammon, is, the, is really the word. It's Aramaic. It's a, an abundance of material possessions and resources, an abundance of. That means more than you need is really what he's talking about. And this is what Jesus said he was going to do for us on the cross as he looked at this idea of us trying to find, to do things in our own power and our own ability and our own works. He's like, No. I, I had to go to the cross and die in your place. See, you think that money will bring you peace and salvation and hope and joy, but that only rests in me. I'm the only one that can actually do that. If you've placed your life in the life of Christ, you, you have died to your old self. You reject the old self that was in control, that called the shots, that made all the decisions. And the new has come. 1 Corinthians would put it this way, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. See, we like the idea of having fire insurance and not going to hell, but we still want to be in charge. Jesus is like, that's not how this works. You were bought with a price, and the price was Jesus going to the cross and dying in your place, absorbing the wrath of God, the punishment that you deserved, placed it on himself, bore that, died for us, and went to the grave that we deserved to go to. That was the price. God died so you can have life. You were purchased. You are not your own anymore. The reality is we have to admit and come humbly saying, I am in sin, I am wrong, and you are right. My way of life caused this problem. And so I now reject that, and I turn to you. And because you are good, right, and perfect in every way, I want to bring you glory by living a life that submits to everything that you would want because you know it's best. I don't. That's what's being said here. Your life is no longer about you. It's about God's glory, not yours. So why attack money? It's a distraction. The world says this is where you find your hope, you find your value, find your worth. The gospel always rejects this idea. The gospel says no. I'm the one who does it, not you. The pursuit of wealth, it's, it's never-ending. You never have enough. You got to keep having more. It, it, pursuing wealth as your joy and hope and security is like running on a hamster wheel. You ever seen a hamster on a hamster wheel? He was like, well, that's the dumbest creature in the entire world. He's going nowhere. He just runs and runs and runs and runs. 
And then if you run too much, you just die. That is the picture of pursuing wealth, that we are on a hamster wheel that has no ending. It will never satisfy. You're never going to get anywhere. So as I was reading through this, I was, I was struck by how amazing the way that Jesus teaches this. Because actually, it's out of order. If you, if you look at the structure of the writing, it's actually upside down. He starts with treasure, then he goes to worldview, and then he goes to your masters. Do you realize that he's, he's working him way down to where the root is? He starts up here to what we understand and know, which is the fruit, and he slowly starts bleeding down into the root of the problem. If you want to understand where real treasure is, you can't until you have a proper worldview. You can't have a proper worldview until you have the right master. See, he's flipped the whole thing upside down. You have to have a life that's surrendered to Christ in God to have the worldview, to have the light to see what is right and wrong, which then allows you to identify which treasure is the way that you should be pouring your life into and what is eternal and what is temporal. That's what he's doing. He's flipped it all upside down. He's saying we have the wrong ideas about this. He knows that the world wants you to pursue money to make you think that you're taken care of. It's the great trick of the enemy. Do you, do you realize that the enemy is more than happy to give you tons of money if it causes you to be distracted from following and worshiping and loving God? Everything that's a curse? Well, how could, how could getting all this money be a curse? Because it's a great distraction. It takes your eyes and your focus off of what really has value and meaning. See, Jesus is offering something that has eternal value, that will not fade, that will last forever. The salvation that we desire, the hope that we desire, the joy that we desire, the peace that we desire, it's not in what we do, it's what Jesus has done for us. So what is this treasure that can be stored in heaven? This is really about being the light of God in your life. The treasure that we invest in is bringing glory to God in all that we do and all that we say. How we think, how we talk, how we act, how we treat others. And that our life would ultimately be a picture of generosity. Not being selfish, not being stingy, not bringing it in. Like The fourth contrast that's kind of hidden in this story is the idea of generosity and selfishness. It's not saying that you shouldn't work hard. It's not saying that you, you shouldn't earn a living. It's not saying that you shouldn't have nice things. That's not what it's saying. It's the abundance of, the storing up of, putting your hope in the multitude that you would have and that you hold it because it gives you hope. He's saying if we are going to be like Christ, this earthly treasure is a bad thing for us. It's going to, it's going to master us. It's going to keep us from being generous with others. This, this bad eye, it's going to make us be stingy and self-centered and selfish. It's neglecting the hurting and the broken and the marginalized, the unfortunate, 
Because here's the thing that worldview says, you have to keep making more to have the value that you desire, to have the recognition that you desire, to be seen as good. Oh, look at me, I've done all this stuff. So if you give that away, that takes away from your bottom line of you trying to pursue what you're trying to pursue. You can't do it. See, that, that is the heart of the gospel is generosity, right? It's the abundance of God's love and grace poured out on his people. That he has literally poured out heaps and heaps and heaps of his love on people that did not earn or did not deserve it. There's no reason why we should be experiencing God's love and grace and mercy other than he is a loving God who does that. He saw those that were in need and he met that need. We can do that in our lives now. The treasure that we can do is we can bring the gospel to others and how we live and how we talk and how we think and how we give money, how we meet tangible needs to do what? To point to the spiritual need in their life. That is the treasure. At the end of the day, it's like, do you understand that God is still calling us to invest in something? He's calling us to invest in that which is eternal. What is eternal? People. People are eternal. We get the opportunity to invest in people that will last forever. They will either be forever with God or forever separated from God. Do you understand? Like that is the treasure that we get to invest in and pour forward. So your friends, your family, your coworkers, people you do hobbies with, that that is an opportunity to invest in the treasures, the heavenly treasures in this that God has given us to be a part of. That's what he's calling us to. This really isn't a sermon about how I should invest my money, <laughs> what stocks I should buy, the biblical. That's really, it's really about the heart of what it is. Do you understand that there is something that has more value? I mean, we could go to the, the parable of the great pearl, the, the treasure in a field, and the whole idea is this. When they saw something of greater value, they sold all that they had to pursue the thing that was worth more. That's what we're called to do. The things of God are more important than things of this earth. How do you view money? Does it reflect the gospel? Are you generous with money the way that God is generous with us with his grace and love and mercy? Maybe you need to ask the question, what, what is your treasure? What do you value most in this world? Is it you and yours? Because if God acted that way, gosh, you'd be in a lot of trouble. What is your worldview that guides your life? Do you have one? Because I'll be really honest, the world is a fickle place and it's changing its mind all the time, isn't it? I mean, just a couple of years ago, this is what we valued and now we value something completely different. So if you're going to put your trust in something that changes with the tides and the pressures of the world, then you're going to be really hurting and lost. You're going to be in a cave with a flashlight with no batteries. And then the final question, which is really where the question should start, who is your master? Who's your master? Because how you answer that 
will determine everywhere you go in life and everything you do in life and what you value and what you reject. Let's pray.